Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan. Hello and welcome to Polycast episode 354. I'm the main team and today I'm joined by special guest co-host Dan Q. I'm looking at you looking at me. Makalua. Still weird to keep calling him a special co-host when he was a big co-host for such a long time. And Mega Bears fan. Woohoo, we got the episode number right this time, because it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> it only worked because I checked because of last time, so it could have been me instead. You never... <laughs> Math is hard. For remembering what it is, it's hard. Welcome to our third episode on Priming Civilization VI. It's not just for you console players out there. No, no, it's for all of us. We're two expansions into Civilization VI, and it has been more than three years, whoa, since this game was released, so it's always kind of good to go back to basics. And today we're going to be talking about those mid and a particular later game things. I mean, assuming you get to that point, or you do an advanced start, then... Well, that's all I will say about that. We're going <laughs> Dan's favorite, the advanced start. Look, it's, it's not a bad <laughs> way to actually use some of these mechanics and get used to them before you encounter them uh, in, you know, an actual game that you're serious about trying to win. It's true. It's and if you find that you're playing in general, I mean, if you're finding you're dying before this point in time, then this is an actually an opportunity to use these mechanics. So congratulations to you. Uh, I mean, no, I still acknowledge still advanced starts. That's something I get points for that. I don't know how many points, but anyway. I'm aware they exist. <laughs> I'm aware they exist. All right, so using spies. So ah, it was so nice to see the return of spy units in Civilization VI after they were sorely missed in Civilization V because they were very abstracted. It was not a unit that you could control. Now you enter the Renaissance. Renaissance! And... <laughs> <laughs> that may have been another reason why I wanted to introduce this topic. Uh, uh, it's suddenly. Of, it's one of those life's mysteries. <laughs> Once you enter the uh, Renaissance era, a spy unit cannot be purchased with gold. It may perform espionage offensive missions in foreign cities and city-states as of the Rise and Fall expansion pack, and can also perform counter-espionage defense mis- missions in your own city. The thing about a spy is once you've constructed a spy, you must send it to a particular city. Well, that is if you want to send it to a foreign city, you can keep it in the city that it's in, and it can be defending your city center or some other district. If you send it to another city, you're going to have to wait for a while for the spy to become established, and then you're going to be offered missions. Uh, And in terms of the espionage missions, there are quite a few. There are some that are going to give you a 100% success rate and don't risk you being discovered. That's gaining sources and a listing post. The first one, where the spy will operate at two levels higher for 24 turns, and the listing post will increase the diplomatic visibility with the civilization by one rank. 
Successful espionage missions will allow you to advance your spy, uh, going from recruit to agent, secret agent, and then master spy. And once you reach Master Spy, that's as many promotions as you're going to be getting on it, unlike, say, other units in the game where you get to level 4 and then you can start backfilling. Well, you can't actually do that in this case. So it's time to specialize your spies, and you can only have so many as well. The promotions you get are also uh, randomized, right? Kind of like apostles? Uh Yes, yes, it is true that the options that you are going to have in terms of upgrading your spy are going to be randomized, as Jason said. So you're not always going to be able to choose from the very first possible ones, but you will get up to one, two, three, four, five. Uh, you can get up to seven uh, in uh, Gathering Storm uh, if you are. Catherine and France, France, right? Yeah, you get an extra spy, uh, but you're going to get a spy. Once you get to Renaissance, uh, you'll get one at Castles if you're playing Catherine. Uh, otherwise, a diplomatic service, nationalism, ideology, Cold War, computers, and intelligent agency. And you can have more than one spy in one city, including your home city. It's just they both can't be trying to complete the same mission at the same time. It's also important to note that uh, unlike Civilization V, if you're coming from that game, you don't get the spies automatically. You actually have to train them in your cities like any other unit or building or infrastructure in Civ Six. Yes, so and again, to reemphasize, you have to build them, you cannot buy them. And there are uh, policies that uh, speed up the production and uh, effectiveness of spies. So uh, if you're just sitting there waiting for a spy to spawn, uh, you're doing something wrong. Go, go check your city's build lists. <laughs> really, the promotions... Oh, go ahead, Maggie. I was going to say, off the top of my head, one of the ones is Machiavellian... Machiavellianism? Because I mean Machiavelli, but it's not just... It's a quicker spies, but also they uh, do their actions faster as well. You know, so you're not sitting there and taking, like, four or five turns to steal attack. Maybe it's only two or three turns to steal attack, depending on your speed and everything. Yes, and that's right. Uh, Maggie's, of course, referring to one of your uh, social policy cards that will increase that, uh, the chance to establish and or to complete missions. In terms of the missions themselves, which is what you have the greatest control over, depending upon where you're sending the city, of course, as I mentioned, it's going to either, it's going to be in a district in a city. So if the city doesn't have that particular district, then you're not going to be able to place the spy there. And depending upon what district you place them in, that will determine what your options are in terms of what it is that you're trying to do. My personal favorite is the siphoning funds by placing them in a commercial hub. And the richer cities, so the larger cities, the ones that have more districts, it's going to yield more because what the spy does is they steal the gold income this district has accumulated for the duration of the mission, which of course scales based on game speed. And this could be potentially hundreds, uh, low hundreds, mid or even the high hundreds. And the nice thing about this is if you are successful, the game will tell you this is how much gold you would be able to steal at the end of the duration of the mission if you are successful. So I'm looking at foreign cities. I am looking at what districts they have. I tend to go for the commercial hub and then I will click on each one to tell me, and unfortunately you do have to click on each one to tell you, okay, there's a commercial hub here and you'll see that icon. And you'll get used to the colors, the different icons, the district, uh, the different districts, so you know. And you can make that choice. You don't have to commit it at that point. You can either say accept or cancel. Once you commit a spy to the mission, it cannot be undone. 
Same as if you are counter-spying. I'm worried about someone stealing gold from me, so I'm going to place my spy in my commercial hub, say in your really strong economic city, like for example your capital, and it will stay there for the duration of the mission. If your spy is successful and it gains enough experience, then you will get promotion options. The only thing that I would say, other than I really like siphon funds, I think that is generally the way to go, particularly early on. So, you know, something to keep in mind is your diplomatic favor, because it is possible for your spy to be captured. Uh, it is possible for your spy to be caught and killed. Sometimes the spy will not be killed, but it will be held by the sieve. Other times the spy will be successful, but then have to flee. Or they might not be successful and they might have a chance to flee. Get to that in a moment. But I would say if it's a little later on and you're looking at a culture victory, you will probably want to be targeting theater squares for great work heists, where the spy will attempt to steal a great work residing in the districts. And if there's no great works there, then the mission cannot be executed. And each separate mission will specify the exact great work, uh, which will be targeted. Uh, if there are multiple great works, creative writings will be displayed first, and works of arts and artifact and music and so on. The other nice one that is of good potential is to uh, place them in a spaceport, uh, which will, it's called Disrupt Rocketry, and it will attempt to sabotage and pillage the district, where any science victory project that the city was currently undertaking will be postponed until the spaceport is repaired. And because you can tell on the map by looking, and also this nice little handy search feature we have now, hmm, I wonder if they have any spaceports, and if they're online, you're going to be able to tell that, so long as you have visibility on the map, and you can send your spy there. Siphoning funds and the spaceport sabotage are pretty much the only two spy operations that I ever use on a consistent basis. If you're behind, the Eureka's are pretty good. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to say, I use Steel Tech quite a bit, actually, when I'm a little bit behind, or there's like one branch I didn't go down and I'd like to have that, you know, and I feel if, I mean, my spies have a good enough chance to get away without too much diplomatic hit. Yeah, I, I rarely ever do that one just because the odds of success are usually a lot lower than the other missions, and the odds of your spy getting caught or killed are usually so much higher. So I usually don't do it unless I really, really, really want to... Uh, there's a handful of texts that you can only get the Eureka from spies, and I think uh, one of them is, was it Rocketry, and I think Nuclear Vision, and uh, like one or two other late-game texts. I don't remember off the top of my head which ones they are. Uh, but I, I might do uh, send a spy to get those Eurekas. But other than that, I, I usually avoid that mission just because uh, I always have really low odds of success with it. Yeah, that's the Steel Tech Boost, where in, in the campus district, there's also sabotage production in the industrial zone, where all buildings in the district are sabotaged at the same time. The district itself is not sabotaged, however. And there is also, with neighborhoods, recruit partisans where the spy will cause two or four rebel, i.e. barbarian units, to spawn around the district. However, I find that these spar these wow, well, not these Spartans, wow, sorry Greece, or not sorry, as the case may be, that these partisans <laughs> are, um, how do I phrase this, not the mm, brightest light? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just barbarians. <laughs> Yeah. And they're gonna they're, they might pillage some stuff, but they're probably not going to be a threat to the city that it is spawned in. And quite frankly, given the chance of success, your limited number of spies, and the duration of the mission, it's something that I generally tend to avoid. It, it's lulzy, to be certain. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, your friends with it, if, but don't expect much. They're not a threat to like capture the city or anything, but if they pillage districts, especially late in the game where the costs of districts are so high, like that can be a really big deal. 
it's kind of one of those the, the the thing. Well, the districts that I would really like them to pillage later on, if it became an issue, would be the spaceport. But I would just myself rather tell the spy to just go to the spaceport itself and specifically try to sabotage the district because once you make those barbarians, if you are successful, they're going to do what they're going to do. You can't direct them to where they go and what they do. Yeah, so how, how to use them is basically going to come down to... It's going to be very situational. If the other player has a lot of districts and you know because you have units in their territory or you can see through your own um, diplomatic visibility or your own spies, that they don't have a lot of units in their empire. Maybe all of their units are out fighting a war somewhere else or all of their units have been killed and they never bothered rebuilding any. Uh, then the partisans might be really good because they're going to have free reign to just wander around their territory pillaging everything in sight. They can completely wreck a player's economy if left unchecked. So, and the AIs love to um, uh, do the recruit partisans mission against me. I don't know if, if you all get that a lot, but I see, I have it happen to me all the time. So I highly recommend that you leave, you know, a few tanks or helicopters or uh, artillery uh, or aircraft in your cities so that uh, if these things get spawned, you can kill them in one turn and not risk having multiple districts pillaged by them. The one the AI likes to use against me all the time is the uh, neutralized governor. Thanks. Ah, yes. Introduced <laughs> in the Rise and Fall expansion pack in the city center, where the spy will incapacitate the governor assigned to the city, removing them from duty for the next few turns. Again, number of turns dependent on game speed and can only, of course, be performed in a city with a governor. I do find that pretty lulzy. And it's kind of one of those things where, okay, the biggest thing for me is I have to remember after I see that in-game notification, once that period of time is over, you need to go back and reassign the governor. It would be really nice if, hey, the governor has been neutralized for five turns. At the end of those five turns, that governor is going to go back unless you specify otherwise, because that's where you wanted him or her in the first place. But you're going to have to remember that. So maybe make yourself a little note. That's kind of the, the, the extra lulzy part of that, which is they neutralize them for five turns, but actually they haven't been there for 10 turns because I kind of forgot. I, I got busy. Oops, I forgot about <laughs> well, that. And there's also the time it takes to set them up. And yeah, the, the game's UI is not super great about notifying you that your um, governor is available to go back to work. So uh it's really easy to forget about that for several turns, at least. Uh, also introduced in Rise and Fall is Format Unrest in the city center, where the spy will galvanize support from radicals and fringe groups, reducing the city's loyalty by 25. This can be used situationally quite powerful if it's a matter of, maybe I'm not so much wanting to capture the city myself, but it would be nice if it went to a free city, because then some civilization is not going to be able to control that, and then they're going to have to try to get it back. But I, I would say out of the three that were introduced in Rise and Fall, and the other one being Fabricating Scandal, uh, where you spread rumors and try to remove the top-ranked civilization envoys from the city-state, that if you're going to choose one of these three, Neutralized Governor is probably your best bet But most of the time. But I think they're all pretty lulzy, whereas the format Unrest can be powerful, but it is so situational that you're probably just better off, you know, if that's what you're going to use the spy for, um, invest in something else and... Go take the city. It can be useful, though, if you're um, if you're playing in Rise and Fall or Gathering Storm. If the uh, that sieve is in a dark age where they're already getting a loyalty penalty, mm -hmm. then that thing becomes a lot more viable <clears throat> because they're already being penalized, and uh, their city will therefore be much easier to flip. 
especially if you're in a golden age and you're applying double pressure to that city. Also, imagine using the, <clears throat> this as Eleanor with the whole court of love thing. Mm. Yeah, this would yeah. be very good with her because the city instantly flips to her control instead of becoming a uh, a free city. I've actually had her do that to me a few times on cities that I had recently Ooh. captured from her, and she just took them right back like five turns later. And I'm like, wonderful. This so, is why in multiplayer we keep burning cities if they're hers. <laughs> I was just about to that makes some comment about well, let's see how you do that when I raise the city the next time I take it. You such and such. <laughs> and uh, speaking. Oh, well, God. okay. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> also, on Counterspy, we didn't mention that earlier, that when they're in a district, they also cover the adjacent districts. Like, if yes. you have two or three around your city center and you put them in your city center, well, then also, like, your commercial hub and your science hub and things might also be covered well. So that's another thing to think of when you're doing Counterspy, to position that so they cover as many districts in the city you're doing as possible. Yes. Particularly your capital, because they love to target that. Right. Another and reason if you're building your districts very compact anyway, in order to take advantage of, like, say, theater square uh, adjacency bonuses, then, yeah, you're going to have a much easier time later in the game uh, using your spies to protect your own uh, cities and districts, because you can just put your spy in whatever district happens to be in the middle of that clump of three or four or five districts, and all of them are protected. Speaking of counter spying, if you have the option with the quartermaster promotion, with a spy, then you're going to want that spy in your home territory, because if it is in your home territory, all of your spies operate at plus one level. And that is definitely worth having one in there, because it's going to increase the chance of success of all of your other spies in doing whatever it is that you want to do. And that can be anywhere in your home territory. I feel like I always get that promotion as the second promotion after my spy has already received the promotion that makes them more effective at sabotaging things in other Civ cities. And then I'm just like, oh, gee, thanks. Wonderful. Yeah, I think kind of at that point, that should be an impetus to, well, I've got one spy. Mm, but yeah, if <laughs> to me, if you've got a spy that has the quartermaster promotion, yes, it can be frustrating if that's not the first one it gets and it's already got something for something else. I think it's worthwhile sending it home to your home territory, at least so long as you've got other spies out there that are trying to do something. I mean, you may find yourself in a situation where I really do not want to potentially tick off other civilizations. I do not want to get denounced. I do not want them to be looking at me negatively for whatever reason and making me a target or be unfriendly enough as a result of that to then no longer be my friend and maybe break allies and I just want to keep them all at home. And that's fine. But the quartermaster is probably going to be one of, if not your most powerful counter spy, all else being equal with absolutely no experience at all, that could very well be its first promotion. And that is extremely powerful. Yeah, uh, it's definitely worth sending that spy back home. If you have like two or three other spies mm -hmm. that are out and about uh, doing operations in foreign lands, but if you only have two spies total, then he's only <laughs> going to buff one other spy. Then, mm. you know, it's probably not worth it. it. It can be worth it once you've got other spies online and then, send him home and then send another spy in his in his place. Um, the only other thing to talk about in terms of missions before we talk about the promotion aspect is the one introduced in Gathering Storm, which I find honestly probably the, well, the, the potentially the most lulzy because you don't have a lot of control over this, uh, where the spy will damage the district, causing a flood and leaving the city vulnerable to damage from floods until the dam is repaired. But first off, you need to find a city that has a dam in it. 
And second of all, yes, it, it, again, it's a very situational one, but I really pay attention to it the least. Now, part of that might just be because it's the type of spy mission that has been around the least amount of time, because it was only introduced in the second expansion pack, Gathering Storm. And I've already kind of quote-unquote set in my ways, you know, old man quick over here, in terms of my spy missions. But I do find it, again, under the category of lulzy. I think I played a game recently where I did that mission on um, a river that had a tributary river that had another dam on it. And the flood from the first dam actually pillaged the second dam and created a chain reaction that actually Ooh. went down through the tributary river as well. I was like, whoa, I didn't know that that could happen. It's unfortunate. Gee. And no, it wasn't. It was my spy that did it to another civs. So it was good. Uh, it was unfortunate, it was unfortunate for them. For them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, is there also a spy mission to pillage canals or is it just dams? No, just dams. Ah, well, there should be a spy mission to pillage canals. Praxis, if you're listening, well, make it happen. And speaking of making it happen, what would be really, really nice is if, I don't know, you have, let's say your spy is in uh, your home territory, and it is successful. And, oh, who did we lose? Did we lose somebody? The bot. Oh, the bot. Okay. Bye, bot. <laughs> if... Where was I going with this? Okay, if you have a spy in your home territory and, oh, success, a, a spy tried to come in and siphon gold from your commercial district and you were successful. Hey, let's get a promotion. Um, can we guarantee, can we please guarantee that one of those possible options is based on the fact that, mm, I don't know, the spy was working in their home territory? So, oh, look at that. I can now get the seduction promotion where a counter spy is if two levels more experienced. But the only promotion options I have are for the spy to do something somewhere else. It would be nice that, not that it automatically does that, but it would be nice if one of those two choices would be based on the thing that the spy just did. There's a, a world wonder in the game. It's the Mont St. Michael, or Michael, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, that uh, lets apostles choose from any promotion uh, that's possible for apostles. I really wish they had either a world wonder that did that for spies, or if the um, the the spy intelligence building that you can build in the government plaza had mm. that effect for spies, because then I would probably build that building a lot more often. Because right now, I think it, all it does is it gives you one extra spy, and I think lets all your spies at one level higher. But if that building let you choose from all available promotions, I would build it a heck of a lot more often than I do now. You might want for balance to make the decision that the only spies that would be able to, you'd be able to choose the mission with is if the spy was actually constructed in that city. But even that might be a little unnecessary because you're only going to be limited to, again, six or seven spies over the course of the game at any one time. I mean, if you get a spy that's killed, you can build another one. It's not like, oh, well, that's that. Well, again, like I said, there's a world wonder that does that for apostles, so I don't see any reason why we can't have something that does that for spies, too. Even if it does have to be another world wonder, like maybe the Pentagon or like uh, the Kremlin or something like that, you know, that could have that effect for spies uh, would be really nice. I think it would even be nice to kind of tie that to what you were alluding to before, where in terms of like a government plaza district tier building. So if you're willing to invest the time as an option and you get to, say, the third tier, then everybody will be able to choose it, whether or not you're going to be able to get to the World Wonder or not, and whether or not you have the ability to construct that World Wonder, depending upon the you know the limitations of geography. Although I can't remember off the top of my head what kind of limitations there are for the Mont St. Michael World Wonder for 
apostles. Is it has it? to. It has to go on a marsh. On a marsh. Oh, marshes, marshes. It might also be able to go on a floodplain as well. I don't recall for sure. I think it is strictly a marsh. Remembering off the top of my head. Okay. So otherwise, with spies, I uh, talked about um, the. Uh, stealing great works. So if you get a spy, for example, that can be <laughs> Cat Burglar, love that promotion name, where they'll steal great works as if two levels more experienced, then that's fantastic. But again, also to tie to this, if you have that spy that's in your home territory and your spies are operating at one level higher than that, then they're going to have a better chance of doing whatever it is that they want to do. There's also Con Artist, which is Siphon Funds, as if two levels more experienced. Um, just for Mackie, license to kill. Neutralize Governor, as if two <laughs> levels more experienced. <laughs> uh, there's also Rocket Scientist for the disrupting rocketry. So, oh, I'm sorry, you're poor, poor, poor spaceport. Um, and, you know, stuff like that, particularly with, with that one, I'm just thinking if there's multiple spaceports, then, of course, you could move that spy around, right? At the end of their particular mission, they're going to ask you, and I do appreciate that there's a renew mission button, that really does cut down on the micro, because from that same screen that tells you this was the result of this mission, um, would you, if you say okay, then they're going to prompt you for what you want to do, which you can just renew mission anyway. But it does cut down on the clicks there, which I, I really do appreciate. Uh, there's also other ones that will like counter spies if two levels more experienced. That's uh, seduction, steal technology as if two levels more experienced. That's a technologist. So again, being in the campus district, uh, fabricate scandal, smear campaign <laughs> as if two levels more experienced. A lot of these have if two levels more experienced. And if it's a choice between that one and almost any other one, you're better off taking that one because that's two levels more experienced that you're going to get before having to commit them to try to be successful in another mission where they could potentially be killed. This is assuming you do intend to ever use the mission, of course. Assuming you ever intend to use the mission, yes. <laughs> You're never going to use a, the fabricate thing and then you have that guy promoted. Well, that doesn't help much because that's the only thing he's two things better at. Yeah, sometimes it's going to be, well, okay, I guess I'll go ahead and I'll choose this promotion. I really have no intention of doing this in the hopes that, well, okay, maybe there'll be a better promotion down the road. And, you know, it is going to increase their likelihood anyway, because they're going to, again, go up the promotion tree from recruit to agent, secret agent, master spy. Okay, because their general chances of success of what they're doing will increase from there. And sometimes if that's all you can do, then yeah, go ahead and take it. But there can be times where it's no, which I think might be one of the reasons why, when it comes to, hey, do you use spies? There's some things that are within your control and other things that are just so abstracted and, well, <clears throat> random and not based on what you're doing or not doing. It can definitely get frustrating. And I guess the last thing to talk about is, hey, your spy has been discovered. Uh, whether they've been successful or unsuccessful, hey, at least they're not dead. Or at least they're not dead yet. Um you need to escape from the target city, you will be prompted to select the mode of escape, and there are four possible options. Almost always, your choices are, well, your choice always is going to be on foot. Um, uh, there's also the vehicle requiring a commercial hub district in the city, the boat requiring a harbor, and an airplane requiring the aerodrome. It's essentially how many turns are they going to take in order to complete that, and the fewer the turns, the greater the risk. Honestly, I will almost, almost always choose foot. 
yes, it's going to return in four turns, but think about how many turns it's going to take you to construct another spy. If you chose another option and they turn around and got killed, you're going to be ahead. Especially if that was a promoted spy. Yes. So yes. we covered on the show, but the um, the capture odds there are misleading. It comes to that when it comes to your uh, attempting to escape. I forget what episode that was. It's true. Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, still foot is still your your best bet, but well, for yeah, those foot of is us still that your like, best bet. But I mean, like the displayed odds are actually like unrealistically yeah. optimistic. Basically, like you're you're being misled on your success of survival slash not being caught. And you're actually you're saying you're more likely to get caught than the odds. Uh, in- Sometimes I, I I would need to go back to that thread and check the details because uh, it's uh, it was pretty involved. But yeah. Uh. Oh, I keep saying last thing, and there's one more thing. We'll talk about, hey, your spy flees. Congratulations, your spy was killed. Or in some cases, your spy is captured. Uh-huh. Well, since you're not allowed to re- not to replace captured spies with newly trained ones, uh, so that counts towards your limit, you may want to try to get that person back. It really depends on the AI and your relationship with them. Just like if you capture one of their spies, if you capture one of their spies, I am like, you know what? I'm totally on board selling it back to the AI almost always because yes. Okay. Now they're going to have a chance to use that spy again, but the damage that they're potentially going to do to me more often than not, I'm still farther ahead by paying their spy back. And depending upon who the uh, leader is and what your disposition is, sometimes they are really, really willing to give the spy back for a considerable amount of money. And then you can turn and use around the money to spank them back. If you are doing a pseudo victory condition like space, you probably don't want to give it back because they'll, uh, they'll they'll try to sabotage you potentially, and that's annoying. Unless you have like a really good counter spy and you just keep catching them over and over and over again, and then just keep selling it back to them over and over and over again for free gold. I guess, but by then, do you really need the gold? Or what are you going to do? Buy space probably parts? Not. I mean, I guess. <laughs> I guess you could try that. Lol. Uh, one other uh, question that I had is. Uh, do spies actually have any uh, uses in city-states? Because I remember in Civ Five, one of my favorite uses of spies was to influence city-states, and I don't think you can do that so much in Civ Six. So is there anything in the game that you can do in a city-state with a spy? Yes, fabricate scandal. Ah, you try and it's it. only if the other Civ has envoys there. Yeah, so you're not going to want to fabricate scandal in the city that you're the suzerain of. <laughs> Yeah, because that's not going to help you. But yeah, yes, you got can a do that. Crushing lead on a city state—that's uh, well, that's the thing, right? It, it's it's uh, you know, oh, they've got twenty envoys in there. It's it's probably I, not worth your while to fabricate scandal there. But if you're, it's kind of that ping pong back and forth. That could be enough to remove a few of them to then put you in the suzerain position, and then also give you the chance to get more envoys, and then you're that much farther ahead. Or potentially to make peace with the city-state if you remove uh, a suzerain who you're at war with, and then the suzerainty goes to someone who you're not at war with, even if it doesn't go to you. Or heck, even if they just become neutral again. Like, you know, if you just want to make peace with them, that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I assume that if the Amani, uh, the diplomat governor, is in a city-state, you can also neutralize her if you send the spy to the city-state. I don't think I've ever actually tried that. Oh, yeah, because that would be a neutralized governor mission. No, I haven't tried that. That would be handy in some of the games where yes. there's a city-state that's close to me, but then somebody who's halfway across the map really wants that city-state, and they put her and a crap ton of envoys in. 
Yeah, I've never tried it, so I do not know for sure that you can, but I would assume that that is a mission that you could do in a city state. Yes, if you were to neutralize the governor, so that's another way to get to a city state. Of course, Imani would um, automatically be giving you two envoys there, so you neutralize her, that's at least two, and if they really had a grip um, on that city state, because there's that uh, Imani promotion that doubles the number, yeah, doubles the number of envoys you have there, if that's there and you manage to neutralize the governor at that point, then, well, at least for the next X number of turns, they won't be. And yes, that could be enough for peace. And there are definitely times when uh, the city-state, the city state. <laughs> this one or more city-states that have the AI that you are fighting or one of the AIs fighting that are, you know, the suzerain of, they're causing more grief for you than the AI itself. So that can also be, there can be situational, but that can also be powerful. Another way to use um, spies with city states. That actually might be the one of the stronger uses of neutralized governor to go for. I mean, it's very situational, but to get in there and remove that particular one, or even to go to uh, where Victor is, if he's got enough promotions on there, and oh, that city can't be under siege. Oh, well, yep, now it can. I've neutralized yeah, Victor. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, not sorry. And then maybe you'll get lucky, and the AI will forget to place the governor back there when they can't do it. No, the AI is not quite so. And if you're uh, if coming from older civilization games, then there's also a handful of espionage missions that you might notice are not present in Civ Six anymore, which includes things like damaging walls and uh, poisoning water supply. Suitcase units are not in the game anymore, at least not as far as I've seen. So uh, if you liked any of those missions in older versions of Civ, uh, sadly, they are not present to Civ. It's been a long time since we've had suitcase nukes, as awesome as they are. <laughs> Isn't, uh, they were in Civ 4, weren't they? Or was it 3? No. Maybe 3. I don't remember 3 well enough, but they were not in 4. No. 3 was the first Civ game that I've played, and I'm pretty sure I've used suitcase nukes. So it had to have been in Civ 3 then. I know they were in 2, but I don't, I don't remember if they were in 3. A lot of us try to forget 3. Full stop. Oh, um, wait, that's another topic. Been in, uh, it might also have been in Beyond Earth. That might also have been where I... I don't remember. There was yeah, also bringing down the walls was really nice. So, yeah, that's yeah. nice. There's also the civilization called the Power Offshoot, but man, that'll just get us on a really incredible tangent. <laughs> and man, Look it up. There was that one multiplayer game in uh, Civ 4. Who did I do it to? He was pretty upset. Where I, I popped one his capital by uh, poisoning the water and then, like, destroying his luxuries and crap. So he one, just had, uh, like, hugely negative health, and it, it just starved his capital out completely. <laughs> well, it wasn't me. I'd remember that. <laughs> I think it was either yeah, Stuart or one, Dan Cole. One mission that I really do miss from Civ Four that I wish was in Civ Six is the ability to pillage a specific uh, resource tile. Uh, oh, I think that's yeah. something that would actually be very useful and advantageous to have in Civ Six, considering how strategic resource supplies work in this game. Because it wasn't very good in Civ Four, because you almost always had more than one source of a strategic resource, and all you needed was one in order to have its effects apply to your entire empire and all your units. It was still good, though, because like iron and horse in Medieval, for example, were both crucial uh, to have counter units for stuff. And so, like, if they had two sources of iron and one was far away, you could just pillage that one of spies and, like, move your military onto the other one immediately on declaration and Correct. just block all future access to those. Like, it still mattered a lot in Civ 4. 
But but I, as I was saying, I, I feel like it would be an even better use of spies in Civ Six than it was in Civ Four, cons- uh, considering that every point of a strategic uh, resource that you take away actually is meaningful in yeah. both Civ Five and Civ Six. So I, I thought I'm it was really too surprised strong. that yeah, maybe, maybe that's maybe that's why they didn't put it in. But uh, it would be a really nice way to use spies if it weren't needed. I could see that being in the game. It would need to be something that would. Certainly, if this is, hey, this is the first thing I want to try to do with this spy over here. Mm, okay, that's going to have a low chance of being successful. But it could be something that, okay, I've got really invested in those mechanics. I can send my spy there. You know, they're promoted up a couple of levels. They have a chance to be successful. But then it's also, okay, well, they have how many of these sources of whatever the strategic happens to be? Uh, let's just say it's, mm, let's just say it's, um, well, for example, so you go in and it's like, well, how much are they using that hex? Are they really going to feel it? Is it just going to be that, oh, well, it's been like that's been pillaged. But the the thing is, of course, if you did that, then a builder could just go in and bloop, oh, repaired. True. But unlike previous Civ games, uh, your workers don't just hang around forever. So if they don't have a builder just sitting around uh, waiting to repair something, uh, which we'll talk about later when we talk about disasters, uh, they would actually have to invest production in that. So, it's it's a fringe case, but it did it could be it could be powerful. It could be a way to get to that particular strategic resource when you are some distance away on the map of being able to do that. <laughs> and, and another thing too is in in Civ Six uh, in particular, the AIs build their cities so close together, and they love to build lots and lots of encampments. So it's really hard to get even a mounted unit. That's like where their function in the game is supposed to be for hit and run attacks. Uh, you just, you can't get them into enemy territory by itself to do things like pillage uh, resources because they're going to take like four bombardments from four different cities and encampments and just not survive long enough to actually do it. So because of stuff like that, I, I really do wish that uh, that spies were able to uh, to do that as a mission. Mm. Speaking of different types of missions, huh? Huh? Is that supposed to be a sag? Well, it was, and I guess it can, still can be, even though it's been pointed out. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have some doubts on that as a segue, as we are less doing missions and more doing ones in death and destruction, which is only one possible mission. So this is a mission-specific maneuver, and that is using navies and fighting wars overseas. Um, quite a lot to cover on this, potentially. You know, we could spend the better part of an episode on this alone, so I'll try to be... Uh, Somewhat brief and let the others chime in. Uh, navies, for military purposes, unless you've got a unique fort or whatever, don't tend to be so great uh, early on for more than exploration and like killing barbs and stuff that are in the water. Uh, but that, that's a rule of thumb. There are exceptions, and there are times you can wipe people early <laughs> with navies. Yeah, but the, for the most part, longship uh, in particular is, you yeah. know, I would say probably the best early game naval unit. Uh, that's why I said unique, sorry. They're an exception. But uh, once you get to frigates, uh, naval units become very dangerous, especially boosted by Admiral and their promotions. You can absolutely take cities with them. Uh, unlike previous civs, you can not put your city on the coast immediately and build a harbor and still construct naval units. And depending on the layout of the map and what you expect to fight, that might be a good idea because uh, you can... You can avoid enemy ships doing this to you. Uh, it's pretty easy for a handful of frigates to blow away the walls and turn and like have the city down flatline the next turn and just have 
a naval unit uh, sail in and take it, or just land military units and take it because it can't shoot anymore. Since the yeah, especially down. If, yeah, especially if you got that one or more land units uh, that are sitting on top of the frigate for protection. <sighs> yeah. So how much you go navy versus land does depend on the map and what you're fighting and how you can expect to land on the uh, on other continents. Uh, for example, if nearly every single one of their cities is coastal, and you can reasonably expect to take them one after the other, uh, you might very well be able to just take their cities with naval units exclusively and have enough loyalty pressure generated by the cities you've captured to keep them stable and then uh, you know just take care of their last city later. Um, but if they're, they only have a couple of coastal cities, that's not really realistic, and you likely won't be able to hold them unless you bring a land force. In case you'll have to coordinate a land force alongside uh, your navy so that you can push in relatively quickly. And sometimes you don't need a navy at all, because uh, there's like a city-state you can make friendly there or something, or just an open patch of land. So you just ship a whole bunch of troops, land them on the coast, mm-hmm. and declare and walk in like usual. Uh, the main caveat that makes overseas wars a little bit harder than usual is the loyalty pressure. Uh, you have no <laughs> no local source of loyalty pressure to help you out. So anything you get is from what you're conquering. Or uh, if you're lucky, you can trigger an emergency and have one city that's boosted. <laughs> so you need to move quickly if you're not planning to burn everything. But burning everything, while certainly fun, is not as rewarding, and you might want to keep those cities. So in that case, be ready to take several cities within uh, a few turns of each other. Uh, usually a triangle of three is pretty good for a start. Uh, it depends on the layout of the enemy cities and how they're generating loyalty pressure. But usually if you can get three within like you know, three turns of each other, that, that, that's a pretty good start. Yeah, I would say probably the biggest impediment to effectively using uh, navies in Civ Six is that naval units by default cannot heal unless they are actually in friendly territory. And this, for me, has always been like the one thing that makes me not use them for anything other than defense. Because if you send them out and they take any damage at all, even just fighting against barbarians, you have to sail them all the way back to one of your cities, or if you're lucky, maybe there's a, a city-state that you're the suzerain of, you know, in between, uh, in order to heal them. So that makes it really exception. difficult to use as an offensive tool, uh, especially early in the game when you're constrained to sailing on the coasts and you, you know, you can't just sail across the ocean uh, to take a direct path. You gotta, you know, sometimes make these windy, windy routes that take twice as long to get places. Uh, so that's probably the hardest thing about using uh, navies, especially early in the game. Uh, and later when you get to frigates, they have a promotion that allows them to heal in uh, neutral territory. And uh, you should probably take that one as soon as possible because it totally changes how you use those units. I don't so. necessarily agree. It really depends on what you're seeing. Because one of the things you can do is you can just take a city. And after doing so, that is now friendly territory and you can heal. So Correct. if you've if you planned can. it out, that's a pretty practical thing to expect, especially in the Age of Frigates, if you're getting them fast enough to where they are realistic threats to enemy cities. Right, but I was talking more about the early units, the the galleys and the quadrines, right? Because again, there aren't any medieval naval units, so yeah. you're stuck with the ancient and classical ones up until you can get caravels and frigates, which means that they're going to be very quickly outmatched by city defenses and units. So a city with a wall and an archer in it is all, a lot of times enough to sink a, uh, a unit, uh, an ancient unit, in one turn. 
and if not, to put it in a critical state where it's not in a position where it can attack. And then you just have to sail it, like I said, all the way back to your territory in order to heal it, and it just doesn't do anything. Uh, to kind of add to that just a little bit, uh, the galley, of course, is your first naval melee, and your quadrim is your first naval range. So just like land units, we talked about land combat, to take that uh, into account where you know the ranged unit's not going to be able to take a city, but a melee unit would be, would be able to, assuming the city is directly on the coast. The thing about the healing and the early on is... Phil mentioned the exception of, you know, if you capture a city, and honestly, even if you're able to only hold that city for a short period of time because of that darn loyalty pressure, you could be healing on subsequent turns, and that could help you. But the other healing potential is if you are successful in combat, then you are going to get promoted, and you are going to get some of that healing back, which can then lead you to being able to get the promotion that allows you to heal outside of friendly territory. So it is possible, but it really depends on what naval units you have, in the position that they're in, what it is that you are fighting, and what it is that you're choosing to attack and when. Because there can be times, for example, where, okay, I have, say, a couple quadrimes, I'm going to surround this one particular unit, I'm going to hit it once or twice, and they're going to get promotions there, and then I'm going to be able to finish off that now very damaged unit with, say, my galley, and that could also be a promotion for it. Or even if it's not a promotion for it, it's gaining experience towards the promotions, which would limit the potentially the necessity of having to go back home in order to heal, let alone to get that promotion outside of friendly territory. But it is definitely one of those things that you need to watch, that if you've got a lonely unit or two out there exploring and you're up against some heavy hitters, then it's probably high time to you know get the heck out of dodge. Yeah, galleys and quadrimes, I would say, have a pretty narrow window of usefulness. Uh, basically, once your opponents start building walls or they have crossbows in their cities, uh, your galleys and quadrimes should pretty much just go back to your own harbors and wait until they become caravels and frigates because they're not going to be particularly effective unless you have a lot of uh, pretty good uh, land support to go with them. So they can fill a supporting role, but uh, if the city has walls, they're, you're probably not going to be able to single-handedly take up the city with galleys and quadrimes. Uh, the other thing to note about is that none of your naval units are going to be able to enter ocean tiles until you research cartography in the Renaissance, which uh, which it can, and even at that point, galleys and quadrimes are able to enter the ocean tiles. There is nothing like, oh, um, I should be able to attack you right now, but I can't because they're in the ocean, and I could totally be able to attack them if I could do that, but because I can't, and they're right beside me, then they're going to have the chance for the first strike, and, oh, gosh darn it. That's the one thing that I, and I know it's not like a, like a be-all and end-all and a, oh my gosh, make certain you don't go out in the world until you have cartography. But it's just one of those things to recognize that as you're progressing through the technology tree, that where you're going to be able to send those ships is going to be limited, which could also limit your ability to get to someone and also to be able to make strategic retreats. And of course, if you're playing on the higher difficulty levels, the uh, naval-focused AIs beeline to cartography. I cannot uh, tell you how many times I Caravel show up on one of my shores in like 600 BC because <laughs> the AI just power through the tech tree so quick. Jason, that's just because they wanted to meet you and <clears throat> trade you for their goods. Yes. Yeah, you, trade you, me you. for some cannonballs is what they actually do. <laughs> we'll trade. We'll, we'll trade you some uh, warships and army for your cities. So before they were able to come in like a wrecking ball, they came in like a cannonball. Is is that what you're saying? Hit you like a cannonball? 
<laughs> There's also the way to uh, improve your uh, naval units. Uh, certain certain things that actually remind me in some respects of Civilization Revolution and how to <laughs> take a couple of uh, naval units and uh, to become one. Thanks, Spice Girls. Is it called an armada? Or a fleet? Yeah, before that, yeah. Yeah, because there's a few of the great admirals that have those, has that as their uh, retiring ability. And it's actually sometimes more valuable to have them do that. Like if you just got your first frigate online and you have somebody who could turn that into a fleet or an armada, it's like, yeah, let me have that. Let me watch. Let me roll this armada frigate right up against the city in which, boom, oh, look, there went your walls. I mean, yeah, yeah Phil alluded to it at the beginning beginning of this. Just like if you're going to be engaging in any kind of land combat, great generals are your friend. You're going to be engaging in any kind of naval combat, uh, great admirals are your friend. <laughs> Invest and in those. You can, you can build for them just like you can for the general. Yep. You can run projects and rush them out. And if you intend to be using your navy for military purposes in the near future, that's generally worth doing to, to dedicate some production to getting those out quickly. And kind of also what Mackie was saying, sometimes it's more powerful to retire that general, depending upon their retirement ability. Another one that I particularly like is, hey, hey, guess what? I just got a free ironclad. Yeah, on the great general side, there's one that gives you a bombard when you retire them. And if you haven't researched the technology or you got short of the nighter, hey, look, free bombard. Either way, the great general and Landon now and the great admiral in terms of the naval is definitely going to come in handy. I think more often than not, yeah, you're going to want to keep the uh, great admiral around. So long as they have the ability mm-hmm. to, as long as they're you know advanced enough to be able to give that boost to that particular unit, depending upon the era that they're in. Uh, I mean, once that era is passed, then for effectiveness, then well, hopefully they can. Well, they can probably retire in most cases, uh, unless it has something to do with barbarians. Barbarians are disabled. <clears throat> but besides that, there's something that they would be able to do afterwards, even after their combat usefulness, directly speaking, is over. Yeah, and unlike past games, uh, those ironclads are not slow as molasses, so you can actually maybe even get them <laughs> somewhere useful uh, before battleships show up in Civ Six. <laughs> yeah, and so we talked about fleets and armadas. Fleet you create by combining two units of a kind, and an armada creating uh, created by combining three units of a kind. So you get those two units side by side, and those three units side by side, you activate one of them, and then you can go ahead and select, and then whatever unit you have activated and say, I want to create a fleet with you, then that unit that you click on becomes absorbed by the unit that you currently have, and now there is the fleet with the two, or the armada with three. And something um, uh, to note about uh, armies and fleets slash uh, armadas is that uh, when you do create the uh, fleet, the fleet will have the promotions of the best promoted unit uh, that was combined. And if neither of them have uh, promotions, then if either of them has an experience boost from uh, harbor buildings, or in the case of armies, from uh, encampment buildings, then the uh, combined unit will get the best of those. So uh, if you combine multiple units that all have promotions, especially different promotions, Uh, you're kind of going to be losing out on promotions. So I would actually recommend that if you're going to be combining units uh, just before you unlock nationalism, you should try to uh, hard build a few uh, stock units to combine with your promoted units so that you're not throwing away promotions by uh, 
you know, combining them with another promoted unit. It's yeah. true that the increased strength that you get in a fleet, which is plus 10 to combat and ranger plus 17 at an armada, may very well be overshadowed by one or more unique promotions of one of the units that you're looking to combine. Yeah, if you've got two frigates that all have good, that both have good promotions, you might as well have two uh, armadas that have those good promotions instead of just one. And of course, to construct some of these units is kind of the obligatory and keeping in mind about the, the primer nature here. There are certain uh, units that are going to require particular <clears throat> resources. We talked about frigates before. And yeah, you're going to need this little thing called Niter, whether that's because uh, you are currently getting it uh, through improving Niter resources in your territory, you're getting it from someone else, you may, 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 may be super, super, super lucky and get a little bit out of a tribal village, but at best that's going to be good for one and then done. And so uh, that there's a, there's also kind of with this, it's less about the combat necessarily, but there's some really wonky things with the technology tree these days. Um, someone mentioned this thing called battleships, uh, which are amazing. Um, very, yeah. very powerful siege units. And the thing is, you go to construct a battleship because, hey, guess what? I just got the technology that gives us battleships in terms of being able to construct them, which is, just to remind myself, steel. Oh, fantastic. And at steel, now that I can construct battleships, hmm, I want to be able to get this. And it reveals oil on the map. But, oh, I'm sorry, you actually need coal in order to construct a battleship, which is all the way over there on the technology tree, <laughs> which is kind of... Uh, so you just just kind of one of those things to watch um, in terms of... And some of it's like, well, Dan, what can we really do about that short of mods? Well... Sometimes it's kind of the, mm, do I wait to get battleships? Or do I try to press my advantage now with, say, frigates? And it all comes into what are you trying to accomplish and when? You know, you don't necessarily have to declare war, a naval war, and your intention is wiping the city out. Maybe you're not going to be able to hold those cities. Phil talked about the loyalty. Maybe all you want to do is raise them. Maybe you just want to limit their access to the coast. You are not allowed to get off of your landmass, and I'm going to clear a space along the coast so I can land my land troops, and then I'm going to be able to go in and start taking the cities in the interior of your landmass. That's also a completely viable strategy, and in some cases, quite deliciously evil. Uh, in terms of promotions, there's, of course, a different promotion line for both a naval main, melee and naval ranged. And I particularly, not always, but I particularly like those that are going to give you movement and or increased range, just because it allows that unit to be a little more viable in terms of what it can reach. It can move around a little faster for both offensive and defensive purposes, particularly with uh, you know the uh, either the sight range for the naval uh, melee, or in some cases you could get a frigate that could then upgrade to a battleship, and now you've got um, four uh, hexes that it can bombard from the coast as opposed to three, whereas frigates are at two, and of course quadream is just one, and that being able to follow the promotion tree, but also being able to see if I choose this particular promotion, what's going to come after that? 
I think part of the planning as with any promotion is what can I use right now? That's the most important, quite honestly. Oh, I'm not going to be able to get to that second promotion. Uh, yeah, which I really want. Yeah, but is your unit going to be able to survive until then? You know, it's kind of one of those things where it's a, it's a nice strategic choice, but do pay attention to the fact that, oh, I already got a level one promotion and now I can get what I want in level two. It's just like with land units. No, not necessarily. But the game will lay all of that out for you. It will give you the name. It will give you what each of those abilities apply when it tells you that a unit is available for promotion. And all of that information is available to you to the player, which we would really like to see in the game always. Because that's not always the case, it are these things like this that we are grateful for. Uh, I also want to bring up uh, one more thing about navies, which is the naval raider unit, which we haven't talked about, because uh, privateers are probably my favorite base unit in the game uh, because of how versatile they are. Uh, the coastal raid ability, I think, is pretty boss, and I actually wish that all uh, naval melee units had it, but, you know, oh well, whatever. Uh, so the privateers, they're not, uh, they're not quite as cool as they were in Civ 4, where they had hidden nationality and you could just harass anybody. <laughs> oh, that's the part I miss. <laughs> yeah, that's, I missed that too. Uh, I, I really wish, uh, that were still in the Civ games. Uh, but yeah, I, I really love the privateers. Uh, if I remember correctly, they don't require any resources. They do and not. They, and they have a one range bombard and they have pretty good decent strength, uh, you know, especially if the other players are still just fielding uh, galleys and quadrines, you can often one-hit kill those. Yeah, uh, they're, but, they're, yeah. But the coastal raid ability allows them to pillage uh, land tiles that they are adjacent to, uh, so one of the very useful things that you can do with uh, privateers and then eventually submarines is you can sail around looking for all those little barbarian outposts that are like out on islands in the middle of nowhere that nobody has settled near, and you can bombard them to kill the barbarian inside and then use the coastal raid to clear the outpost for gold and possibly era score, uh, which makes them I very useful. Uh, didn't know you could do that with those, and I want to build them. Oh yeah, that's that's what I use them for. Is I, I love to when I get into the Renaissance, I always try to beeline towards getting privateers and getting rangers, and I will usually just send them out together to clear out any barbarians that are straggling out on islands out in the middle of nowhere for you know fairly sizable chunks of gold. And sometimes there's even the goody huts still sitting on islands unclaimed because the barbarians have basically like taken complete control of that island and no one was ever able to get a scout or skirmisher there. Uh, so you show up with a privateer and a ranger, and you can, especially if that ranger is in a corps or an army, uh, you can, you know, pretty much wipe out those barbs on that island and just take all the stuff that's there. And yeah, don't sleep on the coastal raid either as a, uh, as a military tool, because you can use that to, like, uh, destroy uh, other civs' uh, infrastructure, uh, which can potentially cripple their economies without you necessarily even having to take their cities or land uh, units. I guess because the privateer comes in there so late and I'm concentrating on other things, I've never gone and built them very often. And when I've done that, I've been using them against other civs. I hadn't thought to use them as the cleanup crew for the barbarians. Yeah, they're they're on the civic tree. So when yeah. you get them is going to depend on like the balance that you have between science and culture. So uh, in most of my games, I actually get to um, the mercantilism civic before I have frigates. So... Uh, again, they're an awesome military tool at that point because, uh, you know, they're kind of like a frigate light almost. 
and if all the other players, like I said, are still just sailing around with galleys and quadrimes, then, you know, just one single privateer, even with just a range one bom- uh, bombardment, can, you know, wipe those out. And of course, there'll be times that there are those maps that have little to no water, and in which case you can ignore most of what we just talked about. Congratulations for you. <laughs> oh, crap, it's a lake. <laughs> <laughs> that was still uh, uh, that was still that's still funny yeah that's definitely a shout out to uh, Canis Albinus hope to have you back soon I'm Venice I'm finally gonna get out on the water oh crap it's a lake ah <laughs> <sighs> And one more way to enhance your uh, navies would be to build some aircraft carriers and uh, reinforce and support them with air units, which are a very powerful set of units in, uh, I think, all the Civilization games. Air units are really good. Jason. Um, See, that's a segue. I was about to say, Jason. Jason, will you accept this gold star for that segue? (laughs) This is what they're supposed to look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I planned that out right from the start. I've been waiting all episode to pull that one out. Well, and I'm Dan's still waiting. Still out of practice. Hey, hey, I, I'm still waiting to find out if Jason is going to accept my gold star for a segue. Oh, that was I what th- the who was for. Yeah, I was going to oh, say. Oh, okay. Was pretty much an indication for you. All right, I'm just making sure, making sure that woohoo meant yes. You know, I just want to be clear. All right. <laughs> uh, so, so air units come in uh, pretty late in the game. Uh, but if you get them, uh, they are very powerful, especially if your opponent does not have them, because pretty much the only viable <coughs> counter for air <coughs> units is uh, other air units. Uh, there are AA guns in the game, but uh, eh, their usefulness, I, I don't know, unless you all have uh, other strategies <coughs> to using them. I found the usefulness of AA guns to be kind of uh, meh. They have a role to play, but like I, I would not want to try to deal with an enemy air force. Using only a gun. Right. Yes, I agree. But uh, you, you can definitely inflict significant attrition on same tech stuff using mm-hmm. them. But they are uh, they don't work properly either. There's another thread about that as well. The, 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 the short of it, though, is that area, anti-air is, is not great. Yeah, they have very limited range, and they're not very strong. And I think like each AA gun can only attack one plane in a given turn. So if there's multiple planes, then yep. you know you just send one over to draw the fire, and then all the rest make their attacks for free without any resistance. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the AA guns are are kind of mad. I think one thing that uh, makes them an improvement over Civ Five is that they are a support unit, which means that you can stack them with other military units. I think right. I'm pretty sure. Yes, they're a yeah. support unit. Uh, so they're not sitting on a tile all by themselves, and, you know, if you wanted to, you could just spam a whole bunch of them and, uh, uh, you know, escort them with all of your military units, and then you've got some pretty good protection. But, uh, I probably shouldn't talk about the counter to air units before I've actually talked about the air units themselves. Um, air units, uh, are very expensive, and air force is very expensive to create because, uh, Unlike navies, you can't just build air units on cities that are, you know, on the coast. Uh, you actually have to build the aerodrome districts in your cities before you can even build air units. And on top of that, I think all of the air units require a resource, right? Does the, I think, does the biplane, I think the biplane does require oil, right? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head and I can't, but. 
Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm fairly confident that all of the air units in Civ Six require uh, a resource, uh, which means that you have to have access to the resource, you have to have enough of them to build the unit, you have to actually build the aerodrome, which is a late-game district, which means it's going to be pretty expensive, although hopefully you're building them early uh, at a point where they're you know less expensive than if there's already a whole bunch of them in the game. Because uh, uh, if you recall from the previous episodes, uh, well, actually, I don't know, did the aerodromes apply to that? Because they're not a specialty district. Does their cost scale up as more of them are built, like with the uh, specialty districts? Uh, I don't get to that point in the game off bad enough. I don't believe right, so. Yeah. I, don't believe, I don't believe they do. Right. But in any case, they are still fairly expensive. You have to have left space with them if you already filled up all your tiles with, you know, districts and stuff because you built your cities too close together. Uh, you're not, you might not have room for them, so you really have to plan ahead to make sure that you can, uh, you can get them. And then even once you have the aerodromes built, the air units themselves are expensive. And because you don't have any ancient era air units, you have to build all of them, you know, from scratch, uh, at the point where you unlock them, or later. Uh, and you're talking on standard game speed, uh, you know, air units easily costing like 10 to 15 turns of production. And I don't, recall there being uh, policies that speed up air unit production, or if there are, they don't come into effect until typically much later in the game for me, uh, at which point, you know, I've already built most of my Air Force and don't have much use for it. Yeah, you're not you're not going to be able to get a policy card that's going to give you discounted air units. I, I think there is one, but I think it's really late in the game. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, though. Uh, but... Uh, Aerodromes are not a specialty district, so they don't generate great people points. There's no, like, great ace or anything like that uh, that's equivalent to a general. Uh, but air units also don't move around the map like uh, land units or uh, water units because they have to be stationed either in a city or in an aerodrome or in an uh, airfield improvement which you need military engineers to build, because I don't think regular builders can build uh, airstrips. I do want to so, stand corrected. There is uh, You can get plus 50% production towards modern and atomic air units with Economic Union. You are cut out. Yeah. Oh, uh, economic Union, which is a modern era civic, will give you plus 50% production towards modern and atomic air units. So I do stand corrected on that one. But it's kind of one of those where it's later on, and uh, quite honestly... Since you can go ahead and purchase these units, and gold is so powerful in the game, it's probably why it didn't register with me, because I'm almost always buying my yeah, units. I almost always try to save up some large lump sums of gold as I get close to researching flight, so that I can just buy those first few uh, air units. But you can't buy the aerodrome, so you do still have to you know, yes. hard build that and spend the time in production for it. So there's a lot of prerequisites uh, for air units. Uh, just getting to flight <laughs> is not good enough to just suddenly have a massive air force uh, the way that, um, you know, just getting to certain other techs allows you to just upgrade your existing army and suddenly you've got, you know, 12 knights running around, you know, the turn after you researched uh, stirrups. Uh, flight, unfortunately, does not work that way. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, so you just mentioned aerodrome is buildable at flight, 
Uh, we talked about that you need a strategic resource for all your units. Yes, the biplane, which is the prerequisite to the fighter, requires oil. But then once you get to fighters and bombers and jet fighters and jet bombers, you now need aluminum. So I strongly recommend that if you are thinking about an Air Force, that you are going to need aluminum. You are going to want bombers. You are going to want fighters. If you're fighting against the AI, you're probably not going to need hardly any fighters whatsoever because that would be your defense to other people's air because the ai just if they even build an aerodrome they don't put stuff in there or if they put stuff in there they've got a biplane sitting in there when they could have upgraded that to at least a fighter and they don't do any hardly anything with it whatsoever aluminum is revealed at the radio tech which is also modern but seeing as how you need the flight technology in order to get to radio it's right on the same path you'll also need steam power Jet Bomber is available at Stealth Technology, which is available in the Information Era. And the thing that I think is so weird about this is you can completely bypass constructing fighters and bombers and go straight to jet bombers and jet fighters. Even though they upgrade directly, they take the same type of unit. I ignore bombers and fighters, and I go to jet bombers. Yeah, if you can get there in a timely manner. A big Uh A big reason for that is while a bomber can pillage and also perform the nuclear and thermonuclear strike, a jet bomber also has the priority target civilian or support units in a formation directly in addition to, uh, although that's kind of more niche, to me it's not even about the greater strength, but it has the greater range. There are 15 hexes out that a jet bomber can go to by default, let alone a couple promotions down where it can go plus two, so now it's 17, as compared to the 10 of a bomber, which means that you can situate your aerodrome particularly deep within your empire if there's someone right beside you that you want to go after and keep it relatively protected and still reach those cities that are on the border and then once you capture those cities you can in fact move one air unit to the city that you have just captured as well yeah dealing with the range is uh is one of the biggest uh again impediments to using air units Uh, especially those early air units have very limited range so they are mostly uh, defensive, kind of similar to the early, uh, to the ancient naval units. Uh, so in order to use them offensively, you're either going to need to be fighting an immediate neighbor where you can actually put them in border cities where they can actually get over the border and attack the enemy, or you're going to need carriers or you're going to need military engineers to build airstrips uh, out as mm-hmm. forward operating bases where you can deploy them. And even then, like, I think the deployment has a range limitation as well. So you might have to daisy chain the air units across yes. like multiple cities in order to get them to the front line, which might take several turns. And then you might end up getting halfway there or almost all the way there. And then like that last step, uh, the thing is one pile out of range and you're like, ah, I can't actually get there. Yeah, it's true. The the rebasing units, once you construct them in an aerodrome and trying to get them to another aerodrome or to an aircraft carrier or to an airstrip or to a city, you may, as you say, in fact, have to go ahead and daisy chain in that respect. And the other thing about if you're having an airport, if it is possible for any naval unit, naval unit, excuse me, any land unit to move onto it, an enemy and a land unit on it, you're going to lose everything in that district and you just spend a lot of money and or hammers in order to construct those things so make certain that you have a land unit that is a decent land unit for the era and or at least what you're fighting up against to protect that investment 
Yeah, I almost always park a machine gun or its equivalent on all of my aerodromes uh, just in case. And going back to a previous topic, uh, if um, a spy recruits partisans in one of your cities and those partisans wander onto your aerodrome, uh, you know, so even, even if you don't have like a immediate threat, right, where there's another Civ that's going to invade your cities and potentially roll their army over your aerodromes and kill all your air units, those partisans could literally pop up on any turn. So you do need to stay vigilant and make sure you have a military unit on your aerodromes if you have a plane stationed in it. Otherwise, they can be gone at the snap of a finger. And I've had that happen before. And of course, if you're going with the jet bombers to start bombarding cities, the jet bomber, of course, is not going to be able to take the city. So you're going to need melee of some description in order to finish the job. It's just kind of, remember the combined arms. Remember, you actually need a melee unit to capture a city. Yeah, air units are essentially all ranged units. None of them can capture cities. Uh, so, <laughs> unless you want to count a helicopter as an air unit, but it's technically a land unit. So. <laughs> That's yeah, true. The game, the That's game true. Not <laughs> a helicopter as an air unit. Um, one of the other things that can be particularly powerful, or I should say often a limiter I hear from some people is, yeah, but okay, Dan, these jet bombers sound great, but I need aluminum, and there's only so much aluminum on the map. Well, one, uh, tying to a governor, if you have the governor victor in a city that has aluminum, at least one, that's going to give you plus one source through that second level promotion. But what's really nice is if you start constructing spaceports, there's this little wild card policy available in the future tech called aerospace contractors, where cities with a spaceport not only get plus three power a turn, but plus three aluminum a turn. So there's another equivalent source of aluminum for you. And honestly, in addition to be able to bombarding cities, jet bombers are fantastic at going after naval units and land units in terms of bombarding in order to, if not destroy them, then, you know, at least do a little more than scratching the paint. Where if it's late enough in the game, that can pretty well be your primary force for offense and defense. Because I, and I do think jet bombers are insanely I shouldn't say insanely overpowered. They are overpowered in and of themselves because of their strength, but it, it seems like it's insane when you're fighting the artificial intelligence because they are so bad at this combat. We talk about how not very good they are in the water, but they are geniuses in the water as compared to air. <laughs> to, to give you an idea of how bad the AIs are at using air units, I only specifically recall two games in which I ever actually encountered and did combat with an AI Civs air unit. And how yeah, did actually, that combat go? We talked go? about how anti-air is viable. <laughs> in single player, anti-air is viable because the AI does not use air sufficiently to really be a threat. Uh, yeah, it went well for me because the AI was still pretty <laughs> inept at using it. Although yeah. I will say that in one of those games, the AI actually did beat me to having air units and they actually did repel a land invasion successfully until I will to a few turns later get my aerodromes up and have my own uh, air support. That, uh, I've never had trouble on deity. You just like have a couple uh, AA and like infantry or artillery armies, and that that basically ends the AI on deity. Yeah, I'm mostly playing on that. emperor, so uh, the uh, AIs are probably even worse uh, at that. But yeah, uh, if you're only playing against the AIs, you should probably not expect to see very much air resistance uh, at all. 
uh, you know, we've all been playing Civ Six since it came out. Uh, gosh, what's it been like three years now? Almost four, four years this year, right? Maybe four years, yeah, in October. Yeah, and uh, like I said, I, I only specifically recall ever seeing uh, or ever actually fighting against an AI air unit in two games in four years. And uh, speaking of the promotions, if we're looking at bombers, I really like to take the first one, which is evasive maneuvers, which is additional combat strength when defending versus anti-air. Okay, you get the second promotion, close air support, which is plus twelve combat strength versus land units, and then at the third one, it's plus two range. So there really isn't—I mean, there is a choice there, but for me, I kind of wish it was a little bit more, you know, based on the mechanics, based on how the AI does things, that it was a little more of an interesting choice about, oh, maybe you know, this bomber should go this promotion path, and this bomber should go that promotion path. When more often than not, it's really not an interesting choice at this point. Now, if this is a multiplayer question when it comes to air support, first off, congratulations on getting to that point, unless you did an advanced start so you would get to this point, then you're probably going to be wanting fighters as as well. <laughs> but short yeah. of that, if it's just single player, I, you can skip it almost always. Just they don't they don't exist. Clearly, if Paraxis actually wants multiplayer uh, players to use air units, they need to add some like medieval or renaissance like Da Vinci corkscrew helicopters to the game or something. Because that's <laughs> the only way you're going to see We're air not getting unit. that far in multiplayer, in a, in a especially in co-op. Oh, we could have hey, we could have airships back. That allows you to do some little reconnaissance into uh, enemy territory to get increase the visibility. Ooh, we could have that. There you go. Uh, yeah, I think those are uh, also support units in Civ Six, right? Yeah. Are those are those even in Civ Six? I don't even remember. No, the, the the airships. No, they're not. Yeah, the balloons. Yeah, the balloons. No, no, that was just a Civ. Well, there's thing. the observation balloon that. Oh, kind that's of... true. There yeah, is that the observation is in Civ balloon. Six, right. Yeah, but that's not tied to. Well, I don't believe that's tied to. You know, oh my gosh, I need an uh, aerodrome for that. Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah in fact, no. I think all those do is they increase the range of siege units. So they're not. Yes, plus really one range to increase yeah, from arts yeah. units. Yeah. Yeah. It also requires flight, by the way, of course, but you don't need an air drone. <laughs> Correct. And they, then they'd be upgraded to drones. So that means, right. hey, the drone, while it's attacking you, it's like, oh, I'm also delivering this uh, item that you ordered online. Huh? <laughs> you cut out a bunch there, Dan. Oh. Yeah. I was saying that uh, your drone, while it's attacking you, it could also deliver the package that you ordered online. <laughs> somebody order napalm? <laughs> Some- yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Did somebody order gauze? Lots and lots of gauze. <laughs> Did you mean gauze rifle? Question mark. This <laughs> <laughs> suddenly became XCOM. What? So yeah, I I don't play much multiplayer. So and as we uh, as firmly established, the AIs are completely incompetent at using air units. So unless the uh, the three of you have actual tips for dealing with air forces in multiplayer, I don't. Is, do we have much else to talk about on this? I would say build fighters, but that's based on just other people saying that you need them, and it's probably true, based on uh, threads about how ineffectual. Anti-air is. Uh, the only other thing I would add about air units is if you are using aircraft carriers, because you know my aerodromes are just not just not going to get that range. It doesn't matter how much I'm able to promote them; they're not going to be able to go. I want to go onto another landmass and start conquering. Be sure to protect 
your aircraft carriers yeah, because just like in history, your fighters, I mean, they're going to, they can get one shot very easily. And then not only do you use the aircraft carrier, but it has a limit of two, right? So you're going to need a number of aircraft carriers if you want any kind of substantial force on a given turn. But then you're also going to have to invest in defense. I mean, you can choose not to do that. But then you can then go construct the aircraft carrier and or buy it and then turn and buy and construct all those jet bombers or bombers and fighters and jet fighters again. That's kind of the most vulnerable part. And the AI in that particular case, they will. They will target aircraft carriers if they see them with their naval units. That's the one area I would say with air quotes air combat that the AI can be very good at. So don't don't do that. Has anyone ever put their carriers in a fleet or armada? And if so, do you know if that actually increases their air unit capacity? It does not increase their air unit capacity. It only increases the strength of the aircraft carrier. And it's pretty marginal at that. I would not be investing the time to do that with aircraft carriers. The only way that's going to say, yeah, the only way you can increase your capacity, of course, with your aerodrome, if you start then constructing a hangar, then you're going to get increased combat. Uh, experience for your air units plus it'll go from two to three and then if you construct an airport there's additional combat strength plus now your uh, aerodrome is at four capacity but again to re-emphasize your cities themselves the city hex itself can also serve as a base for a air unit the only trick uh, again there's also the airstrips which you can build yes airstrips uh, military engineers i don't remember what their capacity is i want to say it's two but i i don't know i i I believe they are yeah i i i find that i'm not using them particularly often actually hardly at all not just because it's a military engineer thing but because i can move an air unit to the city itself well, I, I actually do build them, uh, build airstrips a lot more now in Gathering Storm because I actually am building military engineers in order to build railroads. So I do actually have military engineers sitting around doing nothing at a point late in the game. And then I'm like, eh, I guess I'll just build an airstrip over here. But apparently the dead silence suggests that I'm the only one who does that. <laughs> I, I, I find that it's not necessary for... Uh, the airstrips, I can definitely see the advantage for railroads, which can be obviously something for another episode that we discuss. Uh, but because I'm able to use those, uh, move my uh, air unit into the city quickly, uh, then I've got one there. And either it's, okay, I'm fighting essentially a land war here right now, and I've got enough cities otherwise nearby on the front that my jet bombers can still reach the cities. Uh, either that and or I've got enough aircraft carriers that are also in in a position to be able to continue to attack the next city because typically right you're not going to take one city and it's like oh my gosh the next you know civ city is eight ten hexes over we find a lot more that cities are closer together which makes it easier to start chain attacking cities and being able to capture multiple cities on the same turn particularly if you uh position your land slash naval melee units well that I, I don't need the military engineer to do that, to do any kind of daisy chaining or to keep the um, pressure on. Yeah, it's very situational. I was I just was saying just... that because the uh, the railroads, uh, I think, do not cost a charge to build, uh, I have the military engineers with their two unused charges oftentimes. Uh, and if there's no good places to build a tunnel, then all right, I guess I'll plop an airstrip somewhere. And an airstrip is, in fact, three aircraft slots. Not two, oh. so it's like ha- so it's like having your your aerodrome plus a hangar. And uh, 
for the sake of completion, uh, I think carriers default to two, but I think they have a promotion that increases it by one or two more. Aircraft carriers only two. Only two. Unless that if the promotions only improve the combat strength. Oh, are there not promotions that increase the I, capacity? I thought there was that a carrying capacity promotion. Uh, for an aircraft carrier? Mm-hmm. I thought so, Oh, too. wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm, that's correct. Maybe hang on here. Promotions. Where is... Maybe I just don't get that far. Well, also, good luck getting promotions for an aircraft carrier. Well, yeah. Maybe that's... The carrier does not get experience when the air units that are stationed on the carrier... That must be it, yes. Hang on here. Personally, I think that's the way it should work. I think the carrier should get some small amount of, uh, you know, carryover experience when air units actually deploy from it. Uh, oh, because the, okay. the combat strength for carriers is crap. So you're not going to be using your aircraft carriers to fight other naval units. You're just going to be launching planes from them, which means, yeah, you are hardly ever, if ever, going to get promotions on your carrier, which means that if there is a promotion that boosts its uh, aircraft capacity, you're probably never going to see it. I, I, I stand corrected. Yes, the carrier, there is one at each tier, so you could uh, get potentially to five aircraft capacity. But yeah, you're just not going to be seeing that effectively because anytime an aircraft carrier is probably going to find itself in combat, it's going to be on the losing end and it's going to be sunk before you'd ever have a chance to promote it, let alone use that additional capacity. Which means because they're so vulnerable, you should be surrounding them with destroyers and battleships and submarines. So the other enemy uh, naval units should not even be getting to your carriers to begin with. So, yeah, uh, the opportunities for experience for aircraft carriers is slim to none. If you've got any kind, if you're fighting anybody that's on tech parity with you, that's going to be really difficult if they have, you know, even just a couple. Because if you've even surrounded it with melee and it's like, okay, well, they're not going to be able to take it, then all they can do is bombard. I mean, yes, it is possible, of course, for them to bombard it into nothing. And of course, we've seen it with land units too, which, hey, my unit has earned a promotion. Oh, wait, no, I can't use it. It also, it, it then turned around and died. Oh. Yeah, and I, I think pretty much the only way that you're going to see your aircraft carrier getting attacked is by other civs air units that are doing airstrikes against the carrier. But if I remember correctly, carriers have really good anti-air defense. So unless you've got a lot of cannon fodder uh, fighters or bombers to throw at a carrier, um, it's probably not a good idea to even try targeting it with your air units. Well, I hope the podcast audience forgives me for an unintentionally potentially misleading people about the additional aircraft slots and naval carrier units, but I guess it's again just a symptom of that they, they effectively don't because you're not going to get that far. And maybe I would have had sympathy except now that I've pointed out I'm not going to get any, but you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to own it and I'm going to challenge the listening audience to say, hey, I would like to see you get an aircraft carrier, get a promotion where, you know what, any promotion, full stop, because uh, your other choice, first one is plus one sight range, but really the additional aircraft slot would be your best choice. And if you manage to get one, please tell us. And oh, by the way, uh, screenshots or uh, didn't happen. Yeah, post your screenshots of promoted aircraft carriers in the Civ Fanatics forum topic for this episode. We'll give you <laughs> likes. Oh, we'll give you we'll give you so many likes, we'll give you some cookies. Mm, internet cookies. Yeah, screenshots or it didn't Cookie? happen. <laughs> no, Mackie. We can't send you cookies. They won't be any good by the time they get that. Even if you're the one who posts it. I don't know. I, we could probably send it on a drone. You know? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you like napalm cookies, right? 
<laughs> no, I do not like navel. Are you trying to yeah, get right? spice to your life? <laughs> Napalm cookie. The rest of it. <laughs> Napalm cookies. Napalm cookies reduces and removes stains. Um. Yeah, removing the object of stain. <laughs> <laughs> What's a tasty treat? Speaking of a tasty treat, tasty oh, treat. that should be the title for this episode, Tasty Treat. But we'll ultimately yeah. leave that to Canis to decide. I mean, he may not go with that, but <laughs> I'll put it out there. Tasty Treat. It right, also has alliteration get going out. for it. It also has alliteration <laughs> going for it. <laughs> Added alliterative appeal. Always a crowd yeah. pleaser. Yeah, plus 25% uh, <laughs> bonus. <laughs> Something tells me there might be a bit of a disaster. What, a tasty treat? I love how all of our teams at the Circle family. <laughs> Jason, where'd you go? Uh, well, well, speaking of going, for joining us on podcast episode 3,300. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. How old whoa, are whoa, we? Whoa, 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 whoa. Time sure does fly when you're having fun. It does. Indeed. I'm Nate and thank uh, you. Bye, everyone. Makalua. Oops, I forgot to hit the red buttons. Ah. No, 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 you and see what... It, it, <laughs> Join us next time when we'll talk about uh, expansion-specific mechanics. Woohoo! Expansions. As for not having the audio cue start, Mackie, it, it's okay. You didn't see Phil's hand signal. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed it, too, initially. <laughs> yeah, we'll have this, a gesture then. than a signal, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Phil will show you a hand signal. Well, wait, what? Wouldn't be the first or the last time. Civilization 3, 4, 5, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.